Justice Democrats, the Freedom Caucus, AOC, Chip Roy. Everywhere we look these days, it seems like we find evidence that the Democratic and Republican parties are not homogenous organizations with little or no disagreement among their members. Yet the idea that our politics is polarized between a red America and a blue America persists. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner, and I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. This week, Lee and I are visiting with Dan DeSalvo to learn more about party factions and their impact on American politics. Dan is a professor and chair of the Political Science Department in the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership at the City College of New York. He is also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And so we're both senior fellows. I think uh, my hair is probably, um, you know, not, it reflects my senior status as well. But, you know, Dan's work, I'm really happy. I'm really excited he's here. It focuses on American political parties, elections, labor unions, state government, and public policy. He's the author of numerous articles and books on these topics, including one of my one of my favorite books uh, that I've read on the subject of parties, on the subject of factions, Engines of Change, Party Factions in American Politics, 1868 to 2010. And he also wrote Government Against Itself, a Public Union Power and Its Consequences. So, Dan, welcome. Welcome to Politics in Question. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure to be with both of you. Well, let's just get started. As I said, I'm a big fan, and I remember reading Engines of Change when it was first published, and as I was relaying to you before we started recording, I, you know, I underlined every word. And, and for our listeners, it doesn't help when you go back to your book and you look and everything is underlined because it's like you have to just read it all over again. But everything in there seemed to be so fresh. It seemed to be so innovative and new, and it seemed to be something somewhat at odds with, I think, the received wisdom of political science, and at least the conventional wisdom that we see so often in the media, that we see so often in newspapers, that we see um, even on Capitol Hill, how members themselves think and their staff as well. And so let's just begin at the beginning. Like, What are factions and why do scholars so often overlook them? Or do I have that wrong? Do they not overlook them? Well, there's a lot in what you say. I mean, going back, you know, to, you know, my original work in this area and sort of what what inspired me to take up this term faction, you know, which is laden with some different connotations that we might, you know, I kind of want to take away. But really, I think your initial instinct is right, or the problem I was wrestling with is the is the one you're wrestling with. And I think, you know, writers of all kinds, scholars, as well as journalists and think tank folks struggle with, which is, on the one hand, we have these two big political parties. There's, for the most part in American politics, two big parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. And we see them, you know, especially over the last 30 years, pretty consistently all voting together in Congress. So they look like big blocks and we want to analyze these parties as these big homogeneous entities. But then we also see in American politics that it's it's really fragmented and we have a lot of legislation that's passed by bipartisan coalitions or even almost unanimous coalitions. And then we have this huge number of interest groups in American politics, you know, compared to, to say other democracies, we have a lot of interest groups, you know, in Washington in particular. And then we've had this whole universe of think tanks that are out there. And 
that are not clearly aligned with or clearly embedded. They're not partisan organizations as they would be in some other democracies. So on the one hand, we have this, you could say, uh, centripetal or all these different things pushing out. And we have very powerful individual legislators, Joe Manchin, <laughs> Kristen Sinema, everything turns on this one legislator. Um, and so how do we make sense of these, you could say, centripetal or diffuse aspects? And then this other thing that, well, we can make some sense of American politics by looking at the parties as just these big blocks. And so by getting into the factions idea, I was trying to define a unit that was sort of in between all the little things, you know, going out, the centripetal tendencies of the political system and the big block view, because neither one seemed completely right. And so I tried to get a unit that would have some kind of ideological outlook, some kind of temporal durability, and some sort of organizational structure. And could that be identified across American history? Right. So not everything would count as a faction, every little group that pops up in Congress here or there. But, you know, so it had to have some qualities that would let it stay for a while and think about political parties in miniature. And we can talk more about why our political system does this. So I then tried to identify, you know, a number of these over the course of really since the Civil War up to what was the present now. 12 years ago. We are in the present and uh, the present is a gift and it's a, a gift to those of us who are trying to make sense of our politics that you are here with us because there's a lot of questions about the factions within the parties now. Do the parties have factions? Are the Justice Democrats a faction? Is the Freedom Caucus a faction? Are the 19 members of the House who voted against McCarthy initially a faction? How should we make sense of the factions within the parties today? I think there, you know, it's this is always tricky when you're trying to assess the present. As you say, it's a gift, but, um, you know, a complicated one. Um, it's always much easier to look back in the past uh, for scholars to draw, you know, nice, neat lines around things in the past when the present is well so messy. How can we use the past to assess what's going on now? Well, I was going to take your first question just with the first caveat of this. this it's hard. It's a hard <laughs> question. And say that, you know, thinking, well, let's take each party. So to, to start with the Republicans, because um, perhaps it's a little clearer there, is in my definition on the basis of, of my work and the way I try to use the term faction, I wouldn't say just the Freedom Caucus alone is a faction. But I think you or just the 19 members who voted against McCarthy. But really, what you're talking about here is something larger, right, which is to say that there and again, it doesn't have a clear label yet, but you might call it this kind of populist. Sometimes this is used this term, the populist wing of the Republican Party, which is going to include some element or base of voters, some percentage of Republican uh, voters in primaries. It's going to include some a group of intellectuals and writers and media outlets, uh, say like Newsmax or something like that. And it's going to include some portion of members in the House and maybe some senators as well. And we can obviously see people lining up, uh, Trump himself, of course, in the Republican presidential nomination for 2024 as constituting this faction. So we draw a ring around all of those elements 
and they're distinct from, you could say, what the Republican Party looked like previously under, say, George W. Bush or going back to Reagan um, with a more free market, individual-oriented, culturally conservative group. Now, if we switch to the Democratic side, you know, really with this going back to the Sanders campaign, and you might even, you know, go go further back, but there is this, you know, stronger pro, let's call it pro-status faction, which is the Justice Democrats, Social Democrats. It's a little complicated in the American context, but here it's both a kind of bewitching combination of pro-statism and economics and identity politics and culture that you could say is a sort of faction inside the Democratic Party, but it's more diffuse organizationally, and it's more hard to draw a ring around, I would say, in part because it's also bleeds out into so many other elite institutions, the university, the media in the United States, that it's it's a little trickier to get your mind around. But I think there's something there, whether it will congeal uh, sufficiently to be a political force remains to be seen. And you could say the moderate or mainstream part of the Democratic Party has sort of held this this faction in check to date. I don't know. Is that helpful? Yeah, let's probe that a little bit more. So one thing that I, I think we struggle with as political scientists generally is, is we're trying to focus only on voting behavior. And sometimes what you're kind of describing is this broader definition of a faction that includes, you know, you talk about universities and media, you, you've mentioned, you, you've checked that. So how do we conceptualize the the organizing that goes on in these sort of extra congressional spaces? And what's the kind of back and forth that you see congealing around factions? And has that been consistent throughout history? Is that something you see as as distinct in this current moment? Well, you know, I grant that the, in some ways the lack of precision of the idea of the faction and the term and its its flexibility um, out of the gates. But I think partly, if we're thinking about this in political science terms, maybe it's helpful to take a step back and think about the American parties and political system even more broadly which is that American parties are these big tent porous things, right? And really what you're looking for inside the party at different moments in our history is really where's the energy coming from, right? And the organizing can take, you could say different forms, right? Uh, And that's gonna be true, whether the party's in the majority or the minority, but even thinking more broadly, we just our parties, unlike let's say European multi-party systems, which Lee, you know, you've you've studied really closely and a, the most eloquent advocate of the multi-party system <laughs> out there today. But you, as you know from studying those systems, multi-party systems in Europe really make for strong party organizations. The parties have a kind of in-tank, in-house think tanks. They can uh, develop clear policy programs. They have strong incentives to do that. Or even if you take, you know, another two-party system like the British system, again, you have these much stronger parties that you could say radiate out from parliament where the leaders on both sides have strong tools to sort of get people in line or what political scientists call party discipline. In our case, we just don't have that. And that was in some ways what leads to this in-between element of the faction because the parties themselves as aren't strong organizationally, 
their leadership doesn't have this ability to say announce a policy platform or program and then actually carry it out. They're just not very good at that. In that sense, American parties are a little bit more like Latin American parties than they are like parties in Europe. Well, if we're thinking about parties with a small P, I bet you a Latin American party might be a lot more fun than, say, like a northern, like German or, you know, you know, Dutch party. Although, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, have you been to a Dutch party? I, I, lots I've of, not. Lots, I, of, I, lots of chocolate sprinkles. You know, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, we'll see. Maybe we'll get maybe we'll get in, we'll get invited to some. I, <laughs> you know, I, I was the executive director of the Congressional Peanut Caucus for a time when I worked in the House of Representatives way back in the in, in, in the day before I be, uh, was enlightened and graced with uh, the presence of the Senate and became what we call a Senate snob. Um, but I, uh, you know, so I guess but I'm hearing that the Congressional Peanut Caucus may not necessarily be a faction per se. I'm um, just I don't want to, you know. I'm just going to, I think that's my takeaway from what you're saying. More, more of a gallery, maybe. <laughs> um, I, but I love this concept precisely because it is imprecise. I think that's important. And I think it is, and it's fluid. But but I think it, the conceptual nature of it does force us to kind of see these contradictions in how we think about our politics and the reality of our politics. And also to see how the kind of true nature of politics. And there is a body of work out there that does work in this area, right? Um, you know, it's not all production oriented. It's not all static abstract type stuff. And there is a lot of stuff, especially in public policy, another area where you are an expert, where this is this, this kind of concept is, I think, prevalent. And my next question relates to that and relates to factions and the policy process. And it's our, you know, are factions helpful? Do they make policy change possible, right? And and if so, how should we think about that? I'm 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 drawn to this notion of in listening to your exchange just now with Lee, I'm drawn to this notion of this the status quo that Baumgartner gives us, this concept of the status quo. And how do you overcome, if you're an opponent of it, the power of the status quo? Will you change the relative balance of power between you and the proponents of that status quo? And that requires you to go outside of Congress. It requires you to play an outside game. And so you message, you do things, you work with outside allies, you try to get the people engaged in the process, you do what Schottschneider has taught us, you start a fight, right? You know, the immortal Mike Tyson tells us everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. There's a lot of wisdom there when it comes to political science, I think, because what that does when you do play that outside inside game in a faction and you're working with various interest groups, advocacy groups and whatnot, is that you're broadening your coalition and you're making it harder for those status quo institutional monopolies, iron triangles, whatever it may be, to kind of contain that debate and you make it more fluid. And so in that sense, I see faction and I see the kind of necessary ingredient of conflict in making policy change and you know progress, depending on how you define it, possible, right? I see the civil rights movement. I see the suffrage movement. I see all of the, every time politics changes in a major way in American history, I see faction. And I don't know if that's correct, if there's a different way that we should think about it, but you know, tell me, tell me how I'm wrong in this, or if I'm wrong in this. Well, I, I think you're onto a fundamental insight about, you know, in some sense, a certain dimension of American politics. Like when people are asking the political parties to do X or Y, they're asking too much. The parties, again, for some of the reasons we've touched on, both organizationally and ideologically, just are too big and unwieldy to do anything like that. So really, it's really looking at for 
a smaller unit that would have the kind of energy. So what would be an example of that? I think probably in our most recent history, the best example is the New Democrats of the 1990s. Um, they formed their own organization, the Democratic Leadership Council. They had their own think tank, the Progressive Policy Institute. They recruited and trained and enlisted a whole bunch of candidates, both at the you know, lower levels of government for governor. And then eventually one of their own, Bill Clinton, was elected president. And you could say that the, the whole objective of the group was to shift the Democratic Party, which they, they saw as having become too far to the left, too out of step with the mainstream. They saw that they were losing votes, especially in the suburbs, and that a more moderate Democratic Party, especially on some, say, cultural issues and even economic ones, by moving the party to the center, they could reconfigure American politics and win. And you could say that for a while there, there was an important reshaping over the course of more than a decade of uh, the Democratic Party by the DLC. Now, whether that's endured, there's been a kind of revolt against that, you know, you could say from the Justice Democrats and others, but that was exactly that kind of sharpening the debate. And that occurred because of, of the actions of a faction, not because of, you know, some broader thing of the whole party did something, um, which it clearly didn't. So when you look at the history of factions and what they want, it seems to me that re reading your work, you are pretty sharp in that factions want to redistribute power with, within Congress, that either they want to centralize power in leadership or they want to decentralize power. And certainly any scholar of Congress would recognize that, that we are in a, a moment of heightened centralization of power in party leaders, which in some ways makes it really hard to observe the factions because we can't see much uh, differentiation in, in the voting patterns because so much is controlled by the leadership. And one of the things that's really interesting to me in this fight over McCarthy's speakership and you know, generally the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus is there are some people who really want a radical decentralization of power in Congress. So I'm curious, and again, this is a little bit more speculative, but you can certainly draw on a fair amount of history, particularly with the, the story of the progressive Republicans. Like, how do factions force that decentralization, particularly drawing on that history of the progressive Republicans, which is an early faction? And do you think we're in a moment in which a faction will force that decentralization again? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the classic case to which you're referring to was the battle over the power of uh, the Republican speaker, Joseph Cannon, at the beginning of the 20th century, which is, you could say, a classic episode in this effort to weaken the Speaker of the House, which then led us to this long period in American history where we've talked about committee government. And it's really the rule by the committee chairs, especially the Southern committee chairs. And I don't know, I'd even kick it back to you, Lee, and say, well, what do you <laughs> make of the, you know, the, the holdout Freedom Caucus really weakening Speaker McCarthy and exacting a lot of, you could say, procedural powers pulling them away from him, you know, which is in striking contrast to the Democrats, which had really fallen in line closely behind Pelosi. 
So here it seems like there is this desire. It's it's not clear where the Freedom Caucus wants to draw the line of giving more power to committee chairs um, or perhaps just to individual members. Um, I think in some cases this has to do with the Republicans aren't quite sure what they want to do in policy terms. If they were more ideologically aligned, they might be more inclined to hand over more power to the speaker. But since they at least seem to be less, uh, you know, again, riven by greater factionalism, they don't want to turn over any power. And therefore, we want to have lots of checks on or possibilities of checking Speaker McCarthy. But what do you make of that? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, I think that there are a few conflicting views within those who are pushing for these changes. I think there are some folks who are who have genuine principles here who really want to see a more decentralized Congress and think that that would be a Congress in which individual members actually feel like they have some skin in the game and want to do the hard work of, of legislating and working out deals. And then I think there are others who are just frankly nihilistic about the whole thing and haven't really thought about what would happen next, but they just feel like something has gone wrong and there's this uniparty that's controlling everything and they just need to move stuff around and and force chaos and and there's some some way in which if if you just crush the, the you know kick the establishment in the face enough times you'll get something. I I don't I don't know. I, I I think it is a precursor to change. I don't I don't think it can go on like this. And in, in some ways, I, I'd like to see Congress be a little chaotic for a little while because I think it would lead to some changes and lead to, frankly, you know, re rethink maybe even the the entire party system as I've advocated. But at the same time, we have a national uh, debt ceiling to raise. And we have a government to fund. So I don't know. It does feel like it, it can't go on, I think. But I just think there's been so much turnover in Congress and there's so much incoherence in the frustration that so many uh, voters and individual members have. And there's been such a different pathway to Congress now. There's just a lot of folks who are going into Congress who don't really have any stake in, in governing. It's just a kind of pathway to celebrity almost? What do you think of that? I think there's a great deal in what you say. I mean, the, the thing that stands out to me is just thinking about so many of the incentives now is partly driven, you could say by two things. One, by the structure of Congress, greater centralization does not allow much space for you could, let's call them backbench legislators, right? Recently elected people. How are you going to stand out, right? And- right. They want to do that, and they're not going to be able to do that in policy terms. And then the second feature is really the changed media environment, both social media and you could say all of the things, you know, social media, online media, but also which is that gives you an outlet to become a, a star, whether that's your AOC on the Democratic side or you're one of the Republican members, Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or one of the others, and you can in a sense, make your mark and make your name and become famous. And there's a kind of incentive and desire uh, to do that. And you could say, well, I'm shifting the dialogue or debate, even if it's not really translating down to policy terms as of yet. So it seems like this combination 
of centralized leadership and the opportunities for so many outlets into social media to create this kind of performance art, if you can call it that, by so many backbench members or newly elected members, that it starts to look fairly chaotic. Yeah, you could you could call it art. It is certainly certainly an art and certainly a performance. Yeah, I, and I think these. I mean, the important thing is that these two things go together, right? Like that that the the centralization of power changes both who wants to to run for Congress and what they do when they get there. And I I, I do think that Congress works better when it's more committee driven and less centralized. But the here to there problem is really hard because you wind up with this period of chaos where nobody knows what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to vote on a bunch of things. And you have a bunch of members who haven't figured that out and maybe they'll figure it out, but it's unclear how they would do that because the individual members have relied so much on party leaders or interest groups that are kind of all over the place. I guess you could see that factions would then emerge in this change environment because they'd have more reason to form. But I want to I do want to go back to that question about the the dethroning of Speaker Cannon. Are we in a similar moment, do you think? Or is this a different moment? And what what I think is different and unique is that the progressive faction that dethroned Speaker Cannon was a, a cross-party coalition, that it was largely progressive Republicans, but there were a lot of progressive Democrats that played along. Whereas here, in this current moment, I think things are so polarized that I don't see where that cross-party faction would emerge that would create a new stability and, and a new equilibrium. I think we'd just wind up back with hyper-polarized parties and a demand for strong leadership, because I don't see where there's much overlap between the parties as there was in the progressive era. Yeah, I, th- there's definitely, I don't think that, although you could say that there is a, a moderate middle that both electorally and probably even in Congress as well feels deeply marginalized, even though they're- Yeah, I think that that, that may be the case. They're just mostly out of Congress. They're mostly out of Congress. And here would be the possibility for bringing them back in and for sharpening the lines of conflict which between uh, the factions in either party, which is really having one party or the other lose more consistently or more clearly. If you think back to that DLC example, part of the issue what motivated them was having lost the number of presidential elections in a row. And what we've had is just this close really closely and hard fought political environment where neither party seems to clearly gain the upper hand and each party then thinks well if we can just you know mobilize right. our, our side again in the next election you know the conditions in the world will be favorable such that then we'll run the table and get to do what we want whereas if one party or the other would lose a couple of elections you know kind of clearly and decisively a couple of times i think that would probably sharpen the lines of conflict and might allow for some of that moderates to emerge in the middle uh, where they're so squeezed now. Yeah, it's possible, although I, I, I think that what's distinct today, even from, from the early 90s, is that there was like a, a really meaningful conservative faction within the Democratic Party. Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. Al Gore was a senator from Tennessee 
whereas now the parties have become so geographically separated and so culturally separated that it's hard to see where the the moderate factions would really emerge. I think there are some moderates for sure, but I think even the moderates don't have the muscle and are, are caught up in this all or nothing, our side has to win. And I, I just don't, given the, the, the way in which our electoral institutions are structured and the ge- geography of the parties, I, I don't really see that happening anytime soon. So am I to, to take your conclusion here that until one party loses decisively, that it, it's hard for a faction to gain the upper hand within the party to say, we need to change course, we need to do something different. I think there's probably something to that now for for exactly the reasons you suggest. Now, that might happen sooner than we think. You know, events can change, you know, economic conditions can change pretty dramatically, and you could see a fairly strong swing in one direction or the other, depending on which party is in power. Really? You think? To play that out. (laughs) Well, I mean, to use the obvious, I mean, not to go all the way back to the Great Depression, but... But partisanship was much weaker in the 20s and the 30s for most people. Yeah, but you could imagine, I mean, in our current environment, it doesn't take a huge shift for one party to win by six or seven points, which in the current... Yeah, I guess that's true. ...would be a lot. And perhaps, you know, over two or three cycles given the right conditions. So one wonders, you know, on the other hand, the American political system can certainly, I think the late 19th century is indicative of this, can go along for a fairly long time with a high level of party polarization and highly organized parties that don't allow much room for for maneuver. Yeah, I I feel like that that is the period that that is very similar to today. Of course, eventually that broke. When the populist took over the Dem- populist faction took over the Democratic Party and Republicans became the majority. So, to your point, this is a final question, and, and again, it's a little speculative because that's the fun thing to do on the podcast when you don't have to publish and spin out ideas within the Republican Party. There's sort of a sense that there is a you're describing this populist wing and actually maybe maybe that's a good way to think about it it seems to me that the populist wing is sort of very anti-system and they like trump because he's really against the system and he's sort of the the person who who just is going against everything that's washington and he has his his biggest support among those who are less well educated and just sort of really disenchanted with the system, whereas you have a sort of more upper class faction within the Republican Party that I think would prefer a DeSantis, somebody who can do a little bit of the populism, but is ultimately not going to blow up international trade or is not going to be too crazy. And I sort of wonder whether those two factions are going to really do a, a kind of fist to fist over the next two years in a way that might force the Republican Party to choose one or the other of them. I mean, I think that's the the, the million dollar question for for going forward, you know, over these next two years is what's going to play out in the Republican primaries with with Trump versus DeSantis versus these other potential rivals. 
And I think there, you know, you've you've put your finger on, you know, a core part of this conflict, which is that, you know, for all of our obsessions about income inequality, there's there's so much of this Republican phenomenon that might be analyzed through status inequality. Um, And in that sense, that that there is a portion of the Republican Party that feels marginalized and excluded from, you know, a lot of institutions of, of American life and that you know they see trump as this way to push back and stick his finger in the eye of whatever it is the universities the media you know the political establishment of the republican party um without necessarily a, a kind of coherent governing agenda whereas someone like DeSantis gives you a little bit of that in a more savvy mode some of the things in florida while they you know really divide the democrats are often fairly popular on some of his cultural issues and cultural politics on schools so you could imagine the elite donors of the republican party being much more favorable to to desantis um, than someone like trump at this point who they probably see as fairly toxic and just appealing to too narrow a constituency but again, this would get you into areas which you you know as well as I about, you know, the Republican primary process, how many candidates we ultimately end up with in that process. It's much more winner take all state by state, which favors Trump. So there's so many variables. You know, what happens with these numbers of prosecutions of Trump? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know who's going to win. I, I, I still think that I would if I had to to guess, I'd guess Trump because of the the winner take all nature and the likely fractured field. But when you talk about these sort of donors who really don't want Trump, and I think there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who are just kind of done with Trump. And I do wonder if Trump becomes the the nominee, if that becomes a forcing event for that faction to really organize. And similarly, if Trump loses, I do wonder if if he or some un, more likely some entrepreneurs around him are try to organize a faction that is just screw the establishment. We're going to spoil this election because we, we just hate the establishment and want to just just cause cause chaos. And yeah, I think about the election of 1912 here, which which comes at a yeah, you know, which is at a similar time in which the progressive Republicans are organizing in Congress. So I think it's it is a really useful way to to think about our politics. I mean, I, I do, as you and and listeners will know, I think it would be more coherent and accessible for voters if it was more formally in a proportional multi-party system, but with within the, the single winner context of our elections, unless we change that, factions are really the only way to force change within our two-party system. Yeah, I think that's an excellent insight, which is that factions provide a kind of perhaps a pale imitation of a multi-party system that gets you some of the things that a multi-party system would, maybe not all of its upside benefits, but it's a way or a vehicle to the extent that people can get organized. Now, a little bit, I wouldn't want to leave people with the impression that, you know, uh, these factions are just going to organize themselves on their own. This takes a lot of work by a lot of people to be motivated to do it. And we've touched on some of the things that might motivate them to do it. But I mean, if you look back again, the DLC example is a good one. This took a lot of organizing and strategizing over a number of years to get something like this off the ground and make it impactful. And again, that's a big challenge. 
Right? There are no shortcuts. Politics is hard work. All right. Well, Dan DeSalvo, thank you for joining us on Politics in Question. It was great to have this conversation, and I hope listeners will come away with a, a new way of thinking about parties and party conflict and intra-party conflict and some of the possibilities and challenges of those. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.